handy. If you'd open it with me to the book of Romans here this morning. We are heading into Romans chapter 9 here in our series, Made Right. And uh, we're going to cover verses 1 through 8 this morning. I'm not going to read them on the front end here. We'll just uh, give you a little bit of explanation here. And uh, then we'll jump into this. But I titled this morning's message, The Things We Do for Love. And, and as I was reading Romans 9 through 11 this week, just studying, I was reminded of something, you know, that the uh, C.S. Lewis, I was going to say Apostle Paul, but C.S. Lewis once said, he said, why love if it hurts so much? And there really is a truth in that. And in Romans 9 through 11, you know, we're going to get a glimpse of the passion that the Apostle Paul has for his Jewish brethren. If you recall, you know, Paul is a, um, an apostle to um, the Gentiles, not to the Jews. You would think in the natural that he would be the apostle to the Jews because of his ancestry that we read about, you know, in Philippians, um, born of the tribe of Benjamin, you know, the, the eighth day, I mean, a Pharisee. I mean, he definitely could relate to the Jews, but God called him uh, to, the, to the Gentiles. But it never changed Paul's heart, you could say, for the Jews. And we're going to see that here. And especially when you look at, uh, in light of, when I, when I titled this morning's message, The Things We Do for Love, in light of Romans chapter 8, which is just such a wonderful chapter, right? You know, as we studied through that, you know, and covered a lot of detail, that nothing can separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. That's like the, the pinnacle, like I said, of, of the book of Romans. Uh, one of the greatest chapters in all of the Bible. And then all of a sudden, you know, have you ever discovered in your own life when there's a great high, sometimes it's followed by a big low. Have you ever found that to be true? And for Paul, it's kind of like that for himself as he shared, you know, what we read about in Romans chapter 8. And all of a sudden we get to Romans chapter 9. And it's kind of like he's revealing his heart, you know, to us. Um, just to, for really kind of to bring us up to speed when you think about the book of Romans, because it's such a deep theological book. Uh, I was trying to go back to when we first started this study. And if you recall, um, and some of you would, because I know that you, this is how you, you study it. When we started, I said, you know, the easiest way to remember this book is, you know, I, I use this term a lot with you, you know, the easiest way to eat an elephant is what, you know, it's one bite at a time. When you look at Romans and how big it is and, and the truth that it communicates it's easiest if you break it into basically four parts and we saw in chapters one through three it dealt with what the first part is that is the wrath of God and then we saw in chapters four through eight the grace of God and then in chapters nine through eleven what we're seeing and we'll be learning about is the plan of God and then from chapter 12 on the remainder of the book it is really the will of God and and it's in It'll even make more sense, I think, to you when we get to Romans chapter 12 and try to, you know, bring things in context. Uh, it really helps you understand very specific verses and why, why they are where they are, you know, in Scripture. But most of the plan that we're reading about here in Romans chapter 9 through 11 really deals with uh, the nation of Israel. It deals with the, the Jewish nation. Um, covers, you know, obviously the, some aspects of, of Gentiles being reached, but it really predominantly speaks to the Jewish people. And you could think, well, then why are we studying that? And it would be a great question to ask. And, and again, uh, you want to understand God's heart for Israel because God's heart for Israel is also God's heart for you. And the way God feels about Israel is also the way he feels about you, you know. Um, we, we love in scripture when we read the Bible and it says that God would leave the 99, right? And go after the one. And when you realize you're the one, you know, all of a sudden they'll go, wow. And you go, but what does it communicate to the 99 when the good shepherd goes after the one? There's, there's something that it, that it communicates, doesn't it? It basically tells you that, you know, if you were to go astray, guess what? That that shepherd would come after you. If he's willing to leave the 99 and go after the one, there's, there's something about the security that God would have for us to enjoy as we understand that. And so a lot of what Paul's teaching about, even though he's, he's focusing on Israel here, you can take it to heart and you could see you know, God's heart, not only for the nation of Israel, but also as we get into this, you'll see God's heart for you. And it's to be a strength and a comfort you know, to us. And so as Paul writes, you know, this letter, you know, the book of Romans, remember it was written to a church that was there in Rome 
And it was made up of both uh, Jews and Gentiles. And Gentile is what? It's just a non-Jewish person, right? But if you think back to the book of Acts, when the church started, there were no Gentiles in the church. It was all Jews, okay? It was entirely Jews. It was the Jewish scriptures, because all they had at that point in the book of Acts, you know, what do we see? Is all they had was the Old Testament to go by, right? Um, it was to the Jewish people. You know, Jesus himself said that the gospel itself was first to the Jew and then the Gentile. When the gospel began, we say, Matthew 28, Jesus said, will be his disciples. And where did his disciples start from? It says in what? Jerusalem, where? Judea, and then Samaria. And then where did it go from there? To the uttermost parts of the world, or as Billy Sunday would say, to the guttermost parts of the world. is wherever God would lead us to go at that point. But as the gospel spread uh, from Jerusalem, obviously uh, more and more Gentiles began to believe, so much so that now, 2,000 plus years later, uh, would you say by a show of hands that there are more Jews than Gentiles who believe? Do you believe that? Anybody believe there's more Jews who believe in the promised Messiah, though the gospel itself says it was first to the Jew and then the Gentile? Or how many would you believe that now, some 2,000 years later, there's more Gentiles, non-Jewish people who believe in the Messiah than Jewish people? Would you be in the first or the second group? Yeah, it's the second group, yeah. And so, you know, Paul, he understands that. So he's, in a sense, he's asking a rhetorical question here, uh, understanding, you know, where, you know, the gospel is in this particular moment in time. And so Paul is now speaking you know, to this truth, uh, dealing with, you know, what is God's plan? You know, what is his heart? You might say there's really three things I put in my notes here, you know, because the Jews have largely at this time, even in Jesus' day, largely had rejected Jesus as the promised Messiah. And so, you know, what the, the questions that come up is, you know, first and foremost, then what is God's plan? You know, if the Jews whom God, you know, gave the scriptures too. And, you know, obviously we know if you read uh, Matthew's gospel, you read Luke's gospel and the genealogy, you know, Matthew's gospel deals with Joseph's, you know, lineage, right? And Luke's deals with Mary's and you trace both of those, those lineages back. You have what? You have Jewish ancestry. So here's Jesus, the, the promised Messiah, who is a Jew himself. Uh, you know, it comes in the fulfillment of what the Jewish scriptures, um, everything, you know, about the Bible there's two groups of people that the Bible is all about. In the Old Testament, it's about the Jews. And in the New Testament, it's about the church. But both stem from the Jews themselves. And so the question comes up, you know, first and foremost, what is God's plan? And then second, you know, how does the Jewish nation fit into God's plan uh, when they have rejected the Messiah? That's a great question, you know, for today. There's many that their interpretation of scripture, it's called, they're called spiritualists is what they look at is wherever you see the, the name Israel, you know, uh, in the Old Testament, God has replaced it or replacement theology with the name or the term church in the New Testament. And Paul's saying that that is not true. There is Israel, there is the church, there is the Jew, there is the Gentile. Uh, they are separate yet uh, brought into one group. And so Paul will, will draw that out. And then the biggest question, and it's the question that many people ask today, is God done with Israel? Is he done? Is, has he moved on to the church? You don't hear much about you know, Israel today. Um, but what is God's heart? What is his plan? And so Paul answers these questions you know, in Romans chapters 9 through 11. And so when you look at Romans chapters 9 through 11, maybe the easiest way to break these chapters down, when we think about the plan of God as you're looking at, it's easy to lay this out, is in chapter 9, we look at Israel's what? Their past. And in chapter 10, we'll look at Israel's present. And in chapter 11, we'll look at Israel's future. And we'll kind of do that a little bit uh, each these next three weeks here. Um, as we look at these chapters. And so um, as, I, as I look at this, especially when I read these three chapters you know, together in context, there's something that Charles Spurgeon you know, once said uh, that comes to mind. He said, and it's why you know, I, when I think about what I titled this you know, um, this morning, um, the things that we do for love. And I think about what Charles Spurgeon once wrote with regard to the Apostle Paul and his words to the church here in, in dealing with Israel. He said, take on a great grief and you will be delivered from petty worries. And I thought about that. It's so 
so good today because of all the petty things that we could worry about, the things that people are getting so sideways about, you know, today uh, in our culture. And he says, and this is Spurgeon, he says, I need not further describe them. He, he had done that just previously. I didn't give you the whole quote. But he says this, he says, if you are concerned about the souls of men, get your soul full of a great grief and your little griefs will be driven out. You know, you ever heard that expression, you know, don't sweat the small stuff and just remember what? It's all small stuff, right? And, and that's really true. And, and the way, you know, we talk about temptation sometimes is the, the best way to, you know, deal with the temptation is, you know, if you're going to say no to something, you have to have a bigger yes, right? And, and it's so true, you know, in our life. And Paul, when he thinks about the gospel here and all the things that are happening in a negative sense with the, the nation of Israel, he has a bigger yes. And that's the salvation of the Jews and never losing sight of that, that, you know, we're here today. Each and every one of us is to be ambassadors for Jesus Christ, to go about sharing the gospel. And so you look at your own life and you go, who are we sharing the gospel with? I mean, if we're not sharing the gospel with people, you know, as we go, you know, Jesus said, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world, you go, you know, we need to, we need to check our heart, you know, with regard to, you know, and people would say, well, you know, God hasn't, I'm not an evangelist. And you go, that's true. We're, we're not all evangelists, but we're all called to do the work of an evangelist, right? But what will motivate you is grief. You know, we sing it sometimes. We even make it a prayer. We say, God, break my heart for what? For what breaks yours. Yeah. And that's what Paul has done. And that's what Paul is doing. And it's a great reminder to me and to you today. Because in this world, and you, and you see it happening, right? People are becoming more fearful. What are they doing? They're hunkering down. You know, someone, like I said, texted me this morning. You know, are we going to experience a famine? You know, should we just go and... And, uh, you know, load up, you know, my family's telling me I need to go and load up on all kinds of stuff. So that way, you know, we can hunker down. And I remember one time we, we bought a, a trailer down in Southern California, our love out loud trailer. <clears throat> and we're still waiting to get that back from the painter. And, uh, when we got there, this guy was, a he was kind of a prepper. He, he had a couple acres of property and he was growing you know, crops there and he had animals, he had chickens, he had all kinds of stuff. He was, he was what he said was a self-contained guy. And I took a guy with me down there that was kind of a prepper, but he was more balanced in his approach to life. And he told the guy, he said, so what are you going to do? And he says, well, you know, if, uh, if everything just starts, you know, uh, going to H E double hockey sticks, he goes, you know, uh, man, I've got everything here. I've got a water tower. I've got chickens. I've got, you know, cattle. I've got meat. I've got vegetable garden here. And he goes, and I'm, and I'm surrounded by a wall. And he did. He built, a, he built a cinder block wall all the way around his house. And I said, wow, that's pretty cool. And I was like, you know, kind of enthralled with all the things. And he was telling me all the stuff he had. He goes, yeah, I got, I got a gun and, you know, and I got this. And so then my friend who's with me, who's a practical, logical thinker, and uh, he was going with me to look at the trailer. And uh, he says to the guy, he says, so do all your neighbors like you? And he goes, well, what do you mean? He goes, I really don't have much to do with them. He goes, but do they know that you have all this stuff? And he goes, yeah, you know, I've told them, you know, that I told them they need to be doing it too. And I, he says, well, they don't need to. He said, they're just letting you work for them. And he goes, what do you mean? He goes, trust me. He goes, sir, he goes, if the world ever gets to a place where there's a famine and you have food and your neighbors don't, and you have water and your neighbors don't, and you have this and your neighbors don't, you go, do you think they're just going to sit on their property and die? He goes, are they coming over that wall? And he goes, well, they can't, it's my property. And he goes, you don't realize what people do when they're desperate. The drastic means call for what? What does that stain? Drastic means call for drastic what? Measures. Yeah, people, they'll do. And so can you imagine what the world is truly, in a sense, going to be like in that day? That's why I'm in my, my theology, I love a pre-tribulation rapture. doesn't mean that we're not going to suffer through anything. But before the wrath of God is poured out upon this earth, it says that he's going to take the church out. And in that sense, then H-E-L-L, hockey sticks, all breaks loose, you know, on this planet. And so, you know, I, I, I think about, so what should that do for us? So should that make us just go, well, hey, I'm just going to worry about myself. I'm not going to be here. Every, you know, every man to himself. And you go, that's not the heart of God. And it's not the heart of the apostle Paul. Here he is telling us, you know, as the church, you know, that nothing can separate us from the love of God. 
but are there going to be people who are separated from the love of God? He goes, yeah, and it's a choice. It's a choice that we make and to choose you know, wisely here. And so he opens there in chapter nine, verse one through three, read it with me here. He says, with Christ as my witness. And so understand the passion, you know, church that he's reading this with. He says, with Christ as my witness, I speak with utter truthfulness. My conscience and, my, and the Holy Spirit confirm it. My heart is filled with bitter sorrow. So this comes on the heels of chapter eight. Once so again, you read this in context. He goes from this boom high to all of a sudden this low because he realizes this great joy that you and I love, you know, that nothing can separate us. You know, there's no, like the song, there ain't no mountain high enough. There ain't no river wide enough that can keep us from Jesus. Amen. And then yet to let that be sobering for a second. And you go, let me just ask you this. I was actually going to ask this. This is in my notes for next week, but I'll ask you this to think about. It. I'll ask it again next week at the beginning of the service. By a show of hands in here, how many of you have a loved one, not, a, not a, an acquaintance or a friend or a coworker or a neighbor. How many have a loved one in your life who is not saved? Raise your hand. If you have a loved one, somebody who you would consider family, a loved one, yeah. Almost all of us in here. And you think about that and you go, and what are we doing to reach them? And we go, oh, I pray for them. And you go, isn't that, aren't you glad that the apostle Paul didn't just pray for people? Aren't you glad that Jesus didn't just pray for people? Aren't you glad that, you know, Moses didn't just pray for people, you know, but that, you know, his heart moved him to action. That's why he said, you know, and they think about this in the title, the things that we do for love. I mean, are we going to stand before God one day and we're going to go, I, God, you know my heart. You know how much I love them. He's like, you were, you were, I mean, he's going to go, you, you were a coward. Because you weren't even willing to, because, you know, I mean, I didn't want to mess up Thanksgiving. You know, I mean, turkey just doesn't taste that good if there's been a fight. I just want to, you know, and it would just mess up the game that we were going to watch later on. So, you know what, things you don't talk about is taxes and religion, you know, with people. You, you, you know, I mean. Do you think that would fly, you know, with God? You go, no. And you go, that God would break my heart. That's my prayer for me. That God would break my heart for what breaks his. And, this, the, and I love as I look at the Apostle Paul's heart here. He says in verse 2, my heart is filled with bitter sorrow and unending grief for my people. He didn't say for those, you know, those losers, you know, those blind people, those deaf people. That he'll that in a little bit. He says, for my people, my Jewish brothers and sisters. And look what he says. Have you ever prayed this? I mean, and really meant it, you know, because sometimes we could say, well, I, I prayed it because I read it in scripture and I know that God won't do it. So it's kind of okay if I pray it. Well, he knows my heart before I pray. But look what he says. He says, I would be willing to be forever cursed, cut off from Christ, if that would save them. My brothers and sisters, my, my fellow countrymen, you know, the the nation of Israel. Paul's going, I, I'd go to hell. That's what he's saying. I'd go to hell if they could go to heaven. He goes, I would, I would gladly trade places with them. And that's what he's, he's willing to do. Which reminds me, like I said, you know, Moses back in Exodus 32 verses 31 and 32. It says, so Moses returned to the Lord and he said, oh, what a terrible sin these people have committed. They have made gods of gold for themselves. You know, God, here's Moses, you know, getting the Ten Commandments and comes back and, you know, what's happened. You know, Aaron and the, and the leaders have taken all the jewelry and fashioned it into, you know, an idol of gold and worshipped it, right? And God's going to, he's going, let's just, you know, I'll, I'll just destroy them all and we'll just start over. We'll make a new people, right? And what does is, what is Moses say? He says, but now he says, if you will only forgive their sin, but if not, he says, erase my name from the record you have written. He said, then blot me out of your book too. If you're going to take them out, if they're not going to get in, then I'm going to stand with them. That's, that's the heart of God. That's why God is allowing us to see this. You know, uh, in Galatians chapter three, verses 13 and 14, uh, Paul reminds us of Jesus' heart. You know, when we see it, you know, Jesus from the cross. I mean, the greatest words, he looks out as he's dying, right, on the cross. And he says, Father, what? Forgive them, what? For they know, what? Not what they do. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. <clears throat> but Paul writes of Jesus in Galatians 3. He says, but Christ has, has rescued us from the curse pronounced by the law. 
when he was hung on the cross, he took upon himself the curse for our wrongdoing. For it is written in the scriptures, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. Though Christ Jesus, God has blessed the, through Christ Jesus, God has blessed the Gentiles with the same blessing he promised to Abraham so that we who are believers might receive the promised Holy Spirit through faith. And so we see, you know, what was said of Moses and Jesus, we also see in the Apostle Paul's life as well. And you think about, you know, again, read this in context. You know, remember, it's always good to understand the history, right? What's going on? What was taking place in Rome at the time that Paul wrote the book of Romans? What was happening to the church there? It was being persecuted, right? Christians were being killed. Well, who were the greatest persecutors of the church? The Jews were. What, what happened? Paul called them Judaizers, right? I mean, imagine every time you go to work, somebody follows you around and tries to undo what you're doing. Happens in the church today. I mean, we see it in social media, trolls, people that just follow you around. Whatever you, you try to do, you know, somebody's always trying to undermine, undercut it. And, and who was that in the Apostle Paul's life? It was the Jews. It wasn't the Gentiles. And, and, and here he is knowing that. You know, we think about that, you know, when Jesus said, you know, don't just love people who love you, but love your what? Your enemies and do good to those who spitefully use you, right? And, and, and you think about that, you know, does that sum up the Jews in Paul's life? And you go, absolutely. I mean, if there was ever a reason where he could say, you know, I hate these people, I don't, let them go to hell, you know, and, and have a bitter heart, it would have been the Apostle Paul. And yet through all that, what is he doing? He's going, you know, I love them. I want them to be saved. I mean, yes, they, they, they cause me great harm. You know, they, they, you know, they've caused me great pain. You know, they keep me up at night. And he goes, but I love them. And I don't want to see them die. You know, the things we do for love. The things we do for love. Look there, uh, again, <clears throat> you think about... Romans, you know, nine, one through five, he says, with Christ as my witness, he says, I speak again with utter truthfulness, my conscience and the Holy Spirit confirm it. My heart is filled with bitter sorrow and unending grief for my people, my Jewish brothers and sisters. I would be willing to be forever cursed and cut off from Christ if that would save them. They are the people of Israel, chosen to be God's adopted children. God revealed his glory to them. He made covenants with them, and he gave them his law. He gave them the privilege of worshiping him, receiving his wonderful promises. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are their ancestors, and Christ himself was an Israelite as far as his human nature is concerned. And he is God, the one who rules over everything and is worthy of eternal praise. Amen. <clears throat> it's always interesting, you know, when you read uh, verse five there, Paul refers to Jesus Christ as God. And if you study, you know, theology, you know, there's all different kinds of thoughts, you know, with regard to was, was Paul talking about, you know, uh, Jesus as being God, or was he making this as a reference to God the Father? And they'll say, well, you know, in every other instance, uh, Paul was making reference to God the Father. And I always laugh at that. You know, I tell you all the time, you know, Martin Luther said, you know, whenever the angels of heaven want a good laugh, they read commentary. And uh, we can do that at times too. And they go, well, people say, well, you know, seeing you know, every other time you see the apostle Paul writing that he's always making reference to the father. This is the only time in scripture where he makes reference to the son. And my question would be, how many times does God have to say something in order for it to be true? What would you say? One, yeah, one. And, you know, I mean, how many times does, do you read John 3, 16? And where's it at? Any other place in the Bible? It's not. And yet we accept that, right? But so when these arguments come up, it's that, ah, and you go, so when people say, well, do, you know, do we see anything in scripture? You know, that, I mean, of the Trinity and you go, or, or the deity of Jesus Christ or where Jesus is God, you know, and you go, oh, the apostle Paul says it right here. And I love the way that he, he addresses it because as soon as he says it, what does he say? What's the following word? He goes, amen. You ever growing up as a kid, did you ever go, you know, you'd say something to your friends and you go, tap, tap, no races. Anybody? What did, what do you, what did you say? What did you say? Like, if you didn't want somebody to be able to come back on you, was there any other saying besides that? I was trying to think of that this morning. You know, we all, my sisters would always, they, they'd tell us something and then they'd go, tap, tap, no races. 
Tap, tap, no races on you. Ah, darn it. Well, amen is kind of like that in the Bible. Tap, tap, no races. Paul's going, I just said it. Jesus is God, and he's worthy of eternal praise and worship. Tap, tap, no races. You know, it's kind of a, the way that you can remember. He says, amen. And so, you know, here in, in chapter 9, you know, he's making it really clear you know, that, that God is worthy of eternal praise and that God is sovereign in his choosing. We've been talking about, you know, God's you know, election and his sovereignty. And he continues, you know, that same vein here, especially with regard to the nation of Israel. And though, you know, you think about this, I mean, God chose through the nation of Israel to reveal himself, you know, to the world and not just, you know, to the nation of Israel, but like I said, but to, to reveal himself through the nation of Israel, you know, that through the nation of Israel, that they would be a blessing to the rest of the world, that God was going to reveal himself. And so he did that, like I said, through the Old Testament prophecies. And this was long before, you know, the New Testament was ever even penned. I've shared with you all the time, remember that old saying, in the Old Testament, the New Testament is concealed. And in the New Testament, the Old Testament is revealed. And so God chose Israel to reveal himself, his plan, his son to the world. And so we owe a debt of gratitude, amen, uh, to our Jewish brothers and sisters. And so, you know, for Paul, this is why he's reminding us, the church, that, you know, we, we have a debt that we owe uh, and it shouldn't just be in gratitude. It's one of the reasons that we love to travel to Israel. It's, it's a way of even saying thank you. And it, and it kind of continues this whole message. I, I shared with you, you know, uh, the very first time, you know, I went with Randy and Nita uh, that I came back and I, and I still have them. I had so many, I still have them. I haven't given them all away. Is I, I was collecting rocks, uh, rocks, every holy site we went to. Man, I was on a scavenger hunt for rocks that I put them in baggies and I put a note in there where I got the rocks from. So when I got back, I knew exactly where they were from and I loaded my backpack with them. And so when I got to the airport to check out, I took my MacBook Pro, which was a you know, few thousand dollar you know, laptop computer, and I put it in my luggage my, and that was going on. And I carried the rocks onto the plane not to let them out of my sight. And the guy who was checking, you know, me at security, he looks at me and he goes, sir, can I ask you a question? And I said, yeah. And he goes, I notice you took your laptop out and you put your laptop in your luggage. You know that that has the risk of it could be stolen. And he goes, and yet I can see from the x-ray, you have a bag full of rocks and you're protecting those with your life. And I go, I can get a new laptop. I can't get new rocks from Israel. And he's laughing at me. And I'm thinking, as soon as I say that, I'm, I, the, it's like the Holy Spirit, just this joy of just this knowledge of going, he didn't get it. He doesn't realize, you know, he's got rocks all around him. You know, and Jesus said, if you don't worship me, what? The rocks are going to cry out, right? And you go, man, if you just knew what you were standing on here. I was telling the story this last week. I mean, everything in Israel is, is, is full of rich history with God and his people, right? Uh, we, we went with uh, Solo uh, on another trip and, and a couple of family that was in our church at the time, their, their parents had a place and we stayed with them. And uh, so we went, we went with just him. He took us on a private little uh, trip and, uh, and along the way I had to use the restroom. And I said, Solo, I said, I gotta go. And he said, you know, Mike, he goes, just get out of the car and go over the hill and, and just, you know, cause there's no bathrooms. We were like out in the forest. And uh, so I ran over the hill and, and I go to the bathroom. And as I'm going to the bathroom, I look down on the ground and all of a sudden it clears a spot there. And I'm looking at this. And so I go, Solo, Solo. So I run, he comes over there where I'd gone to the bathroom. It cleared a spot on the ground. He goes, oh my gosh. He goes, that's mosaic tile. I'm standing on He goes, you just uncovered something. And uh, so there's a number in Israel that you can call to tell them that you discovered something. To this day, I don't know what I discovered, but I discovered something, you know, that, that day. And we were just laughing about it. You go, man, you can't even use the restroom in the, out in the middle of nowhere without uncovering some site, you know, but it was, he goes, I, and he was telling us, and he wasn't kidding. He goes, I think it, he was looking at it and he was using his foot and he was clearing out. And there, it was about a 10 by 10, you know, little space there, but it was all mosaic, you know, tile. And he goes, I think this was a church, you know? And I felt really bad at that, that moment, but you know, that's a whole nother, a whole nother sermon there. I don't, don't want to digress too far, but, uh, we do, we owe so much. And, and by going there, it just communicates, you know, our, our love for the people of Israel. I mean, when you think about, you know, how much money gets spent, right? 
and, and, and visiting, you know, Israel, you know, each year. And it's the church predominantly that goes back there. I think about, you know, when Pastor Chuck Smith, when uh, uh, one of their trips, you know, he donated all the money uh, to the holy site uh, there along the Jordan River and turned it into the baptismal site that now every, every church basically stops at. And, and how many of you have ever been baptized in Israel? Some of you that you went on a trip, yeah. And you go, Pastor Chuck Smith in Calvary Chapel provided uh, the proceeds for that and just donated it to the nation of Israel. And you go, do they appreciate that? And you go, yeah, because their biggest industry is what? It's tourism. I mean, people coming to the Holy Land, why COVID, you know, was so, uh, you know, you think about what it did to every country, but, you know, especially the, the nation of Israel. And you think about the things that, and I'll get into that more next week, you know, with regard to um, the things that Israel produces, you know, the, we think of citrus, you know, uh, Joppa oranges. You've ever had those, those come from Israel. You think of, uh, I think it's De Beer diamonds, uh, comes out of Israel. I mean, there, there's so many things that, you know, originate, you know, in the, the country of Israel. God has really blessed that small, you know, country there. And, uh, but it's pretty amazing, you know, that everything, like I said, you know, comes from the Jewish people and from the nation of Israel. Do you remember the story there in John chapter four, uh, the, the woman of Samaria? Do you remember when Jesus, and we usually focus on the fact that, you know, that, you know, obviously Jesus said, you know, he who asked you for water, if you'd asked him, he'd have given you living water and she wants this water. She doesn't want to come back there. And then they get into the dialogue about, you know, go get your husband. Well, I don't, don't have a husband. Jesus said, you're right. You've had five husbands and the guy that you're living with now, he's not your husband. And she, she says then, oh, you must be a prophet. And this is where then people don't really remember the storyline here, but it's important when you think about uh, Romans chapters nine through 11 in particular, and about the role that Israel plays. She says in, in, uh, in verse 17, after Jesus confronts her, she says, I don't have a husband, the woman replied. And Jesus said, you're right. You don't have a husband for you've had five husbands and you aren't even married to the man that you're living with now. You certainly spoke the truth. Sir, the woman said, you must be a prophet. So tell me, why is it that you Jews insist that Jerusalem is the only place to worship while we Samaritans claim that it is here at Mount uh, Gerizim uh, where our ancestors worship? And Jesus replied, believe me, dear woman, the time is coming when it will no longer matter whether you worship the father on this mountain or in Jerusalem. He says, you Samaritans know very little about the one that you worship while we Jews know all about him for salvation comes through the Jews. Even Jesus says it, you know, himself is that we, and we understand that, you know, that the salvation was first to the Jews, then the Gentiles. And again, and it comes through uh, the Jews into the world as we know it. And that's what Paul is saying, you know, amen, you know, to, you know, here, um, you know, it's exactly what Jesus, you know, told us in John chapter four there. Uh, the Jews gave us our savior, amen. And we will be forever grateful for that. And like I said, you know, when you look at the genealogies of both Matthew and, and Luke, you know, you, you prove this out. Uh, in verse five there, you know, again, looking at that, he says in Romans nine, he says, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are their ancestors. And Christ himself was an Israelite as far as his human nature is concerned. And he is God, the one who rules over everything and is worthy of eternal praise. Amen. And if you think about this, you know, Jacob had 12 sons, right? The 12 tribes of Israel, all chosen, you know, by God, uh, who promised them a land, you know, but because of what? Their unbelief and they quit trusting God. They ended up, you know, in the wilderness. They ended up ultimately, you know, in Egypt for 400 years. And, you know, you think about, you know, uh, the things that happened, you know, as they were there for 400 years, God delivered them, you know, ultimately through Moses. And then again, what happens in their unbelief out there in the wilderness, you know, they, they won't believe again. And so what's taking place is, you know, that whole generation dies without entering the promised land, without receiving the promise. It's the second generation that enters in to the promised land there. And again, you know, all the things that God did, the, the miracles, I mean, the parting of the Red Sea, you know, the, the Israelites crossed over on dry land, you know, everything that God had promised, he was faithful to do. And, and it's so important that we remember that. We, these aren't just stories that we tell our, our children, you know, in Sunday school classes, but they're, they're truths, they're promises. You know, every promise that's made in the scripture is a promise that you and I can claim, and we can lay hold 
lay hold of. Um, you know, and like I said, Paul here, he's asking a rhetorical question to us. Then he says, you know, has God, has he failed? You know, you think about this. I mean, if the, the larger number, you know, of Jews have rejected God, has God failed in his word? Because that's what many point to in our world today. So much can be said, you know, what's going on in our country, you know, even with the regard to the First Amendment, you know, and the attack upon our First Amendment rights. And you think about that. Because there's a, there's a thing that we call groupthink today. So if the media dominates, you know, the narrative, right, and it tells you something, and the majority of the people believe it, there's this belief that, well, it must be right because the majority of people believe it, right? And you go, that doesn't make it true just because the majority of people believe anything or do anything. What makes something true or not is if God has said it, right? I mean, it's that old expression, God said it and that what? That settles it. You know, it's, it's, it's really, it's a done deal. But Paul asked this question. He says, has, has God failed? Has the word of God not taken effect with regarding Israel? And, and what Paul is saying here is, you know, if so many Jewish people have rejected Jesus as their Messiah, does this mean that, you know, God's promise to the Jewish nation has failed? And what Paul is telling us here is just because the majority has failed to believe, that doesn't negate the promise to the minority. And what was true for Israel is true for us. You know, some of you, I know your story. You live in a family where you're the only believer. And that doesn't negate your belief. It doesn't you know, mean that your family's right and you're wrong. You know, that you're the black sheep in the family, so to speak. Um, you know, again, God is forever faithful to his promises. Amen. And, and again, it, it, if, if the world misses it, it's not on God. It's on the world. God has made it perfectly clear. He's revealed it. He said, you know, the psalmist declares he's revealed it to us in creation. And in these last days, he's revealed himself to us through his son. You can know that there's a God just by simply looking around. And you can know God personally by knowing Jesus Christ, whom God sent in this world. And again, like I said, the biggest lie, you know, that when we're, and we really are believing it in this country. And it's the reason why we need to sit back and really think these things through. Um, you know, we believe a lot of what we believe because, and even in our own lives, because the majority of people believe that. We haven't researched it for ourselves. We haven't discovered it. What does scripture tell us? I always think about the Bereans in the book of Acts, right? It says, you know, that they listened intently to the things that Paul said. It says, but then they went home and what did they do? They searched the scriptures to see if what Paul was saying was true. You and I, you know, we are personally responsible before God. When you stand before God and I stand before God one day, it's not going to be in a group. You're not going to be able to say, well, you know, hey, they told me this or they told me this. Scripture is adamantly clear that we need to study ourselves, right? Study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman who needs not be ashamed, who rightly divides the word of truth as if your life depended upon it because it does. That's why Jesus would say, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, and no one comes to the Father except by me. And so, like I said, when, when Paul there in verse 5, when he says, and Christ himself was an Israelite as far as his human nature is concerned, and he is God, the one who rules over everything and is worthy of eternal praise. You know, again, like I said, he ends it with a big amen, a big so be it. Uh, and what he's saying is he's not, he's not worried. He doesn't even care if everybody believes it. He doesn't care in that sense. You know, and trust me, he cares. But in, in proclaiming this truth, it's not predicated on if they believe it or not. He just says it and he goes, amen. Jesus is Lord, right? Amen. And it's not like, well, I hope, you know, if you guys, you know, and because people say, well, you know, Jesus is okay with me, all right? I hope he works for you too. But if it not, you know, all roads lead to heaven. No, it's not what he's declaring at all. He's like, Jesus is God and he's worthy of all praise. Amen. So be it. You know, unapologetically, and, and we should be as well in our life. And yet we, we look at the church, you know, in these last days, and what did Jesus say? He said, when the Son of Man returns, will he find faith upon the earth? Because what are we seeing? You've seen it just like I've seen it. Are people who have been in church with you for years, maybe, for decades, ultimately have they, as it appears anyway, have they walked away from God? Have they given up on their faith? And you go, yeah, they have. And it's so sad. And we shouldn't give up on them. 
And you go, oh, and people go, well, are they still saved? And you go, well, I don't know, because the Bible makes it perfectly clear that the, of the perseverance of the saints, that the saints will persevere, that they'll still be standing because there's only one who can keep us standing. And that'll be the people that are doing what? They're trusting Jesus. If you're trusting Jesus, you know, I always love what Pastor Chuck would say, you know, you are eternally as secure as you are secure in Christ. If you're trusting Jesus, yeah, absolutely. But if you're not, you know, I don't, I don't know what you're trusting in. That's what the whole book, you know, the men are going through the book of Hebrews. That's what the writer of Hebrews is declaring. He spoke through the prophets and the fathers in, in these, you know, the times past. But in these last days, he's given us his word. He's given us Jesus. There's nobody coming after him. Jesus is coming back, but there's nobody else coming. If Jesus isn't enough, then guess what? Then, then there's nothing that's going to work for you. Because nothing else can. Because Jesus is God's final word. And again, you know, unfortunately, even many in the church today, they go, Pastor Mike, I believe this is true. And I go, why do you believe it's true? And he goes, because I Googled it. I go, what? It was on the internet. Okay, well, that doesn't mean anything. Well, yeah. I mean, it's like people have this belief, like if it's on the internet, what? It has to be true, right? And you go, no. That's why they call it the worldwide what? Web. You go, no, it's a, it's a web of lies for the most part. You can't even find truth anymore. Things that you used to be able to find, they get buried, right? All of a sudden you go, I just saw it like six months ago. And you go, I can't even find it any longer. I was trying to watch, you know, the, the show 2000 Mules, right? And I was trying to download it. And I'd go to download it and it would send me to some, you know, other website. And I was like, man, they got this thing pretty well messed up. I mean, you couldn't even, I was, I was laying a bit laughing because I was like, my wife's asking me, what's going on? I go, you can't even, can't even get this. They don't even want you to watch this. I guess we're just going to, she goes, well, we'll just have to go to the theater. I guess so, you know. And, and it just, unfortunately, you're going to see more and more of the, this thing in the world is that, you know, if people are searching and they're wanting to know the truth, Jesus said it best, right? He said, you know, if you will seek me, he said what? You will find me when you seek me with what? all of your heart. And when we find him and we find him through the truth of God's word, he said, the truth you'll know and the truth will do what? It'll set you free. Yeah. So we don't have to look, you know, a million different places. So what really matters, you know, is what God says, you know, Jesus, <laughs> I mean, the word of God declares that heaven and earth are going to what? Pass away. What do you say? But my word will never pass away. You know how many things that you've believed and they've changed over time? You know, I, to be honest, I couldn't even graduate from the third grade today. I mean, Pluto was a planet, you know, when, when I was going to school. I don't know, even my grandkids, I said, oh, oh Paul, well, it was a planet and then it's not. They know so much about it. They go, no, it's a, you know, it's a stagnant star. And I'm, what? They go, well, you know, and I'm like, man, I give up, you know, but that was, that was, that was truth. That was science. That was fact, right? And now all of a sudden it's, everything's changed. But you know what doesn't change? God. He's the same what? Yesterday, today, and forever. First John 5, 19 puts it like this. Says, we know that we are children of God and the world around us is under the control of the evil one. Man, that's, that's actually comforting to know. Because you look around and you go, I mean, have you ever just watched the news in the last month? And you go, it's getting crazy. What do people even believe? You know, and you go, what? What is going on, people? What is happening? You go, I just think of this verse. The whole world is under the sway of the wicked one. You go, it makes perfect sense. And what is John reminding us when he says that? The majority is wrong. The majority can believe whatever they want. That doesn't make it right, but that's, that's the lie that's perpetrated. Well, look at, can everybody be wrong? Yes. Yes, you can be sincere and be sincerely wrong, but you're still wrong, right? You know, let God be found true and every man a liar. Hold, hold true to the word of God. So Paul, like I said, he's, he's making this point because the majority of people, like he said, have rejected God's promise. But that doesn't mean that God's promises, you know, don't apply to the minority. Now you read the book of Revelation, right? And you see, it says there's 144,000, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel, right? Those aren't Jehovah witness, by the way. I just want to help you understand that. They, they are 12,000 Jews from, from, from each of the 12 tribes and 12 times 12 equals what? 144. There's 144,000 
that God has said that he has set aside. Now you think about that, and this is kind of sad, you know, when you think about this, there's roughly 14.8 million Jews alive in the world today. So that, you know, you think about that's 0.019 of the world's population, right? And there's only going to be 144,000. You go, there's a lot of Jews that are going to die. A lot of Jews that are going to suffer along the way here. And that should break our heart. But it doesn't negate the truth of God's word that all of Israel will be saved. What a promise. A lot of work. A lot of prayer. Verses 6 through 8, again, we'll close with this. It says, well then, has God failed to fulfill his promise to Israel? No. No, for not all who are born into the nation of Israel are truly members of God's people. Being descendants of Abraham doesn't make them truly Abraham's children. It's like Greg Laurie saying, you know, going to church doesn't make you a Christian any more than going to, you know, a donut shop makes you a police officer, okay? It's not location, location, location there. He says, for scripture says, Isaac is the son through whom your descendants will be counted Though Abraham had other children too, this means that Abraham's physical descendants are not necessarily children of God. Only the children of the promise are considered to be Abraham's children. So again, no, not for all who've been born into the nation of Israel are truly members of God's people. Again, you know, when you think about, you know, the meaning of the name of Israel, it means governed by God. And what Paul's saying here is not all of Israel is really governed by God. And again, does that mean that God's words failed? He said, no, not at all. It just means that all that aren't governed by God who are in Israel, and you think about that, you know, that's true then, it's true today. And again, so Paul is saying that no one is truly Israel unless he's governed by God. You know, when they claim to be the Jews' children of Abraham, right? He said, well, Abraham's the father of what? Faith, faith. You want to become a, a child of Abraham? Then become a child of faith because he believed God. And, and God had reckoned or counted that to him as righteousness. And so the same can be true, like I said, of, of Christians. Jesus said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father. And again, not everybody who says they're a follower of Christ makes them a follower of Christ. You think about it, Isaac is the son through whom your descendants will be counted, uh, though Abraham had other children too. You know, God's word didn't fail because God still, again, reaches his children on the of the promise, uh, which, like I said, may or may not be uh, the same as, as physical Israel here. So Paul's showing us that, you know, merely being a descendant, you know, of Abraham doesn't save anybody. You know, you think of it for an example, you know, Ishmael was just as much a son of Abraham as Isaac was, but Ishmael was a son according to the flesh, and Isaac was a son according to the promise. You know, one was the heir of God's covenant of salvation, and one was not. Isaac stands for the children of promise and Ishmael stands for the children of the flesh. We see that, you know, in scripture. Like I said, you think about that. There's 6.9 million Jews who live in Israel today. You think about that. 14.8 in the world, 6.9 right there in Israel. And only 144,000 that we see, you know, represented in the book of Revelation. You go, what does that tell us? You go, well... Again, God is still faithful to his promise. God's promises still stand. And he makes that clear. That even in the midst of rejection, even if the majority reject God, that doesn't negate God's faithfulness to the minority. With God, you know, one is what? In the truth, we say it all the time. You've probably seen bumper stickers or a meme. You know, it says, with God, one is a majority. Amen? If God be for you, what? Who can stand against you? And so why is that so important? Like I said, when we started, you know, the service today, why is that so important? Because really, you know, when you think about it, Romans 11, it holds the, the key to our understanding as we study through this. Romans chapter 11, verses 25 through 27, Paul says, I want you to understand this mystery, he said, dear brothers and sisters, so that you will not feel proud about yourselves. Some of the people of Israel have hard hearts. But this will only last until the full number of the Gentiles comes to Christ. And so all Israel will be saved. You could highlight that. It says, as the scriptures say, the one who rescues will come from Jerusalem and he will turn Israel away from ungodliness. And this is my covenant with them that I will take away 
their sins. Who's it speaking of? Jesus. When Jesus returns, he establishes his kingdom. Where will his throne be? In Jerusalem. You know, that's one of the great blessings of being able to, to go to Israel, to think that you can walk where you're going to walk, you know, again one day. You know, it's just, it's mind-boggling, you know, when you really think about it. But I think on a communion Sunday, you know, our takeaway, you know, is the security that we can have in Christ. You know, if God won't turn his back on Israel, you can rest assured today that he won't turn his back on you. Of all the things that, like I said, I could share with you today, it would be that truth. You know, Jesus came to rescue us. Amen. He's coming back, you know, to fulfill that promise. He's not done with Israel yet. But thank God, and we're going to study this in the days ahead, but he has grafted us in. He said, you know, like a, like a, wall, like a wild branch. You know, we've been grafted into the promise of God, and we need to be grateful for that. You know, for some reason in the heart of God, we'll read more about it in the days ahead, the great mystery of God, you know, that he allowed the hardening of, of Israel's heart, that it gave time, this time of the Gentiles, that you and I could be grafted into the promise. And for that, you know, we never get haughty towards, you know, our Jewish brothers and sisters, our Jewish friends, but that we are thankful that God made a way for us to experience salvation. And our salvation comes through a Jewish Messiah. Amen. And, and we need to be so, so appreciative of that and pray for the nation of Israel. And so as we celebrate, you know, communion, I'll invite uh, um, the worship team to come back. And as we do, um, we're going to um, hand out communion to you. So I'm going to invite the, the ushers to come forward this morning. That'll be um, passing out the elements and we'll, we'll receive communion together uh, the way we used to before COVID. Um, it's a wonderful thing to be able to do this together. Just remember, we are the body of Christ. Amen that we are part of one another. It's one of the great blessings of being the church is that, you know, when one suffers, you know, we all suffer. When one rejoices, we, we all rejoice, or at least that's the way it should be, right? We, we go back to the church at Acts and when the church began and it says, and as they waited for one another, and that we, communion is a great opportunity to do that. We don't just jump ahead, but to wait, wait together and to be reminded together that Jesus loves us and that he died for us that he's coming back for us and that, you know, as you receive the elements of communion today and you're reminded afresh that it was his body broken for you, for us, the church, that his blood was shed on Calvary's cross for me, for you, for the church. We are the bride of Christ who Jesus gave his life for. And just appreciate that, you know, afresh today, our Jewish Messiah, uh, the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies come true in Christ. So much to be grateful for today. Father, we thank you for, Lord, this opportunity to receive communion together. And may you just bless it, Lord. Help us to appreciate afresh today that because of Jesus, Lord, our sins are forgiven, that our names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. And we have, because of Jesus, eternal life. And Lord, to get through this life, we're reminded as we receive communion today, that God, you're with us, that you're in us. We have the Holy Spirit as our seal, Lord, for the day of redemption. We can taste, Lord. We get a sampling of, Lord, what, what it's going to be like one day. May we have that moment, even as we worship you in this time of communion, believing in faith that wherever two or three are gathered in your name, that there you are in the midst of thee. Be glorified in this moment, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.